Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Today, I had the honor of interviewing two incredible thinkers who co-wrote a seminal book called Our Separate Ways, Black and White Women and the Struggle for Professional Identity. Funnily enough, one of these scholars, Ella Bell Smith, reminded me that we first met in L.A. in 1999. We crossed paths twice in the same day, which happened to be the day before the Oscars. We reconnected more recently, and I'm so glad because Ella is absolutely brilliant. She's a professor of business administration at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth and a leader in the field of organizational behavior. She has served as a consultant to Fortune 500 companies and many public institutions. Her colleague, Stella Nkomo, is equally brilliant. She's a professor in the Department of Human Resource Management at the University of Pretoria, and her research is also internationally recognized. Their work individually and collectively is critical to understanding how race, gender, class, power, and inequality shape our workplaces, careers, and relationships with our colleagues. I'm so grateful that they just updated and republished their book, Our Separate Ways, which is based on groundbreaking research comparing and contrasting the experiences of 120 black and white women managers in America. The stories are so compelling. Ella and Stella have provided a critical framework for us to explore the intersection between gender and race at work. And importantly, they teach us how to engage in complex conversations and how to execute structural and cultural shifts that have the power to rebuild our workplaces and communities for the better. Also, they are an absolute delight to speak with. I'm so happy you get to hear from them. So let's get to Ella and Stella. Thank you so much for being here, both of you. I really, I really appreciate it. I'm very honored. I'm very excited. 
So, you know what, I would love to start with just a little bit of both of your backgrounds to set context for, for the discussion. Ella, would you like to go first? I am an adopted child. I was raised in the South Bronx by Geneva, Louise, and James Bell. They got me when I was about six weeks old. And my mom had a sixth grade education. My dad had an eighth grade education. They were both children of the Depression. We moved out of South Bronx when I was 12 years old. And we lived in an integrated area in the Parkchester, Castle Hill, what is it, the East Bronx. Went to an integrated high school. Didn't do well in high school. Wanted to be an actress. Did some off-Broadway. Did the Helen Hayes Children's Theater. Uh, Theater was my thing because I couldn't pass the algebra regions. In New York, in New York City, you know you've got to pass the regents. So I switched over to commercial and couldn't do secretarial work real well either. At that point, the guidance counselor, the college counselor, Mr. Allweiss, made an intervention, called my parents into school because I worked for him and said, you know, I think she's college material and I don't know why she's on the commercial track. And that little intervention saved my life and many changed my life. I wound up going to a very small all-girls college, Mills College of Education, which was on 5th Avenue and 12th Street, and uh, commuted, but spent some time down in the dormitory, and student taught in various places around the world, and really had a life-changing experience. Taught for a couple of years in the South Bronx, went back to the school that I went to with the same old textbooks until I got laid off when they laid off all the teachers in New York, got married, that did not work. So I don't talk about that much, but did get married very, very young because that's what girls did at that age. Young women got married, got laid off in New York and never really looked back. Went to the National Education Association, uh, worked there in organizational development, wound up in Ohio working for the county commissioners doing work in education and higher education and found myself at uh, Case Western Reserve in the PhD program for organizational behavior. I was real lucky. They did not require any tests in those days because I still can't do math thanks to my shaky foundation in the South Bronx. And somewhere along the line, met a woman named Stella in Como. And, uh, Stella, do you want to tell the story? You tell your background and then. We, we, we okay, will. well, she, you can see we have a long history here, Gwyneth. I'll, I'll, okay. Because we're old. <laughs> I am one of 10 children, the fourth oldest. And I was actually born in a very small town in Georgia, Tignal, Georgia. And my parents were part of that historic movement where they migrated from the South for a better life. And they ended up in New York City. They left all of my, my, my sisters and I, we were left behind until they could go to New York and see whether or not they could make it. My father had a fourth grade education. My mother had a sixth grade education. We grew up very poor in Manhattan, Brooklyn, and then ended up in the Bronx. Went to a high school. My group was the first group to integrate the high school. So I remember being bused to my high school from where we lived. 
of course, at that time, there was very little opportunity for Black girls to go to college. I was also advised that the best thing for me to do was to get some skills that will allow me to get a job. So I did that. I learned how to type well and learned to do something called stenography, which no longer exists, <laughs> and started working in downtown Manhattan. And one of the things I observed, Gwyneth, was many young white men would come into the bank that I worked at and they would quickly, they would be dressed in suits and they were observing the bank operations because they were slotted for management. And one day I asked my boss, how can I get to do what they do? And he said, well, you have to go to college. So from that point, I, did, I was determined to go to college. I went to college at night in New York City, got my first degree at Bryant University, which used to be Bryant College, went on for an MBA because I thought I wanted to work in corporate America, but I changed my mind. I decided I wanted to go into education because education had changed my life, and I wanted to help other young people to have that opportunity to change their lives. So I went on and got a PhD at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. I, did, I had an interest in management, so I got the PhD in, in management. And started, you know, my from my own experience, always being like the first black woman in anything I did. I was the only black woman in my MBA class. I was the only black woman in my PhD class. And that got me interested in this old issue of what does it mean to be one of a kind? What does it mean to be a black woman in a sea of whiteness? And I had started writing about women, black women in the workplace. And one day I got this call from this very aggressive woman <laughs> who turned out to be Ella Bell. Wasn't aggressive. She called me and, and said, are, are you Stella in Como? And I said, yes, I am. And she said, oh, I'm putting together a presentation for the Academy of Management, which is our major academic association. And I'm looking for you to be a discussant on that panel. I've heard about you and the work you're doing. I also have a similar interest. But as she's speaking to me, she finally says, I thought you were from Africa, but you don't have an African accent. <laughs> and well, I- for my diversity. Yeah, I mean, technique. this is what I mean about the kind of <laughs> improper, but I, I was very, I said, no, I, I, my, my maiden name is Stella Brown, actually. I married a South African, and that's why I have the name in Como. And then she, let, she yells out. She lets out a scream. No, then I said, what high school did you oh, go to? Oh, you asked what high school did I go to? I said, to? what junior high school did you go to? Yes, yeah, so we started questions. Yes, yeah, so you want all the details. I'm trying to shorten it. Nah, 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 that's the good part. So she, she continued with her detective work. What high school did you go to? What junior high school? And I finally said James Moreau High School. And then she let, out a, she let out a scream that could be heard throughout the hallways. But anyway, it turned out that we were connected. She had been best friends with my younger sister. And so she had heard about me and she had heard about the work I was doing. So what are the odds of two women who grew up in this, who went to the same high school, grew up in the same area, finding out later on that we both have PhDs and we were both interested in the issue of race and gender and organizations. 
Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. So tell me a little bit about what it was like to be an African-American in corporate America in 1989. There wasn't an awful lot of information. The New York Times, probably about 1988-89, um, the magazine did an article on African-Americans in corporate America. I remember I got all excited. It was probably, probably about 1985 because I came out of graduate school in 87. And I wanted to do research on African-American professionals. Remember I said I was adopted. My biological family's highly, highly educated. And this was my way of trying to figure out who I was from a, from a backdoor perspective, if you will. And this article in the Times talked about Price Cobbs, who was a renowned psychiatrist, wrote the book Black Rage. He was heavily interviewed in this, in this piece. But the article basically talked about the obstacles, but mostly for Black men. Very, no mention of Black women at all. Okay, so then I really dug my heels in. I said, we got to know something about Black women. Fast forward, when we started doing our study, I mean, we were told, Stella had tenure. I was told, you do work in this area, you won't get tenure. There are no Black women. Why are you doing this? This is a waste of your time. Why are you putting yourself in a research ghetto? So there wasn't an awful lot of support to do this work, number one. But with the help of the Coalition of 100 Black Women, with the help of Harvard's African-American Alumni Network and Yale, we were able to find corporate women, African-American corporate women. And, you know, the network, once you met with one, it was like, can you tell the sisters that we're, we're doing this study? So our phone started ringing off the hook. Remember Stella? Like, oh yeah, I want to be involved in this story because nobody in the study, because nobody was telling their experiences and what they were going through or how they got there even. The, the other thing that was, was really hard to kind of detect was the relationship that the women had with, with, with white women. You know, I was doing some consulting at that time And you always heard from the Black women how they were being ostracized, alienated, not supported, not lifted up, not only by the white men, but by white women. In fact, the sponsors and the allies, the few allies that they did have was often white men. So, you know, the women, the women were out there fighting battles that nobody wanted to hear. I mean, the stories were horrific. And the thing that was interesting as we collected the data, we had a mixed race interview team because the type of life history analysis we were doing 
we were afraid, and the research bears on this, the scholarly work in this area, doing this type of research, you try to match people race alike. Why? Because people are more comfortable in sharing. So they don't feel judged, they don't feel put in a box, and you don't ask questions that you know, you know are really kind of out of the box. So we had a cross-race team, and we interviewed uh, 120 women. So what was the impetus for the book then? What's specifically in the research? And I should mention the book is called Our Separate Ways. It's a fantastic book. It's a reissue of a book that you both wrote, I believe, 20 years ago. Yep. It's extra important. route. feels brand new, by the way. So what was what was the kind of light bulb moment then when you thought, oh, this research is is a book. It's important that we write this book to reveal what? Mm. Stella, what was your moment? Well, I think the moment was, you know, as we did the research, Gwyneth, we realized that what was out there about women in general in management, you have to understand that we're doing this research in the early 90s. And that seems like a long time ago, but at that time, people were still asking questions. Can women be managers? Can women be leaders? And so it wasn't accepted that a woman could even lead anyone. And so we wanted to be able to tell a full story of where these women came from, how they broke into to the corporate America, how did they overcome these stereotypes? Who are they? And on top of that, and most importantly, as Ella said, we also wanted to be able to capture the journeys of African-American women. So our book was probably the first, well, is, was the first book that really took what I would call a holistic approach to really understanding how women, the first group of women who became senior managers and senior leaders in corporate America, there was nothing written about it. And so the light bulb moment was, we need to tell this story because people have no idea of who these women are, where they came from, and how they got to where they are. So it was really new and fresh to really try to understand that. And on top of it, that not all women had the same experience. The women themselves wanted us to tell their stories. True. That was the other thing. And these are Black and white women. These are particularly the Black women. Mm. The Black women really wanted their stories told, number one. And I think the incident for me, we had a year at Harvard at the Bunting Institute. And the Bunting really pushed in those days, pushed for you to do books. So we met with different editors and it was clear to us that we should think about doing a, a book, even though we did not know how to write a book, that we should consider it. and. Part of the Bunting experience was that you had to do a presentation on your research. It was an evening presentation. Florence Ladd was the director. She was phenomenal. But you would bring in, I mean, they would open it up to the Harvard community, to the, to the Cambridge community. Anybody could come. So Stella and I, you know, we present what we have. And we've got so much data because we spent up to some interviews were 10 hours long. So our interview data formats were like 100, 200 pages. So we're sitting there kind of going through going, oh my God, look what we're learning. And we do a presentation and the white women had a fit. I don't know if you remember Stella, they went to Florence. They cannot publish this work. And that's when the light bulb went on in my head. 
like, oh, well, wait a minute. This is a story that we, we, we have to tell because it was evident that the white women, their relationship with black women were just non-existent. Their relationship to femininity, to the women's movement was not strong, okay? They were more white male daddy identified. And for the feminists to, the white feminists to, to realize this, they, this was not going to help their cause any. This was more of, of what they had heard years all along about the relationship. And that was a key part of what we wanted to do. We wanted to tell the journey, how they got there. Yeah. Number one, you know, because no, no group is monocultural. So we had women who came from wealthy backgrounds. We had women who came from poverty. We had women that came from working class. We had women who grew up in all white neighborhoods, okay? We had a a, a diverse group of black and white women. But the hard thing was the relationship between the women. Common denominator that you noticed throughout black and white women in corporate America, that there was some level of Lack of sisterhood or mistrust. Mistrust, lack of sisterhood, lack of support, authority issues, authority issues, authority issues. You know, you have a white woman reporting to you, she goes over your head to the boss. You have a, 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 you're on a team and the white woman will report what you're talking about and claim it as her own. Sexuality between, you know, the white woman is sitting in a meeting and she's twirling her hair and doing all of that. And, you know, the sisters were like, you know, well, I don't do all of that. The fact that white men were more comfortable with white women, you know, they grow their husbands, the mothers, the sisters, the daughters, you know, it's a cultural thing. You know, we, we jump to racism so quickly, but race, we forget, is culturalized. You know, how you learn about race, how you interact across race. And, you know, these little girls, the little white girls that we interviewed, you know, when they were little girls, rather, they did not play with little black girls in the sandbox. They had no idea of who black girls were, what they brought to the table. They were just different. And they were, how can I say, they, they were clear about one thing in the interviews. We're so glad we're not black women. You know, I couldn't be a black woman. I, black women, they, they just have terrible lives. Really? So for us and for the women at the white women at the bunting, you know, to have this come out in a book. Mm-mm. So that's when I became more determined. Oh, we, we got to do a book. I think white women historically as like, if I think about the shortcomings of a white woman in, in corporate America, and this idea that they had to approximate the male archetype in order to succeed. And culturally, as you point out, like black women are approach it differently. They're not trying to approximate anybody else except themselves. Like I always say this to my black women friends, like I think black women are so close to themselves 
And the way that we white women have been socialized is to please and to fit in. So we tend to put that first in our advancement. So I imagine if you have a black woman who's close to herself in corporate America, and then you have a, a white woman who is trying to assimilate or is trying to also ad- make career advancements, which is also noble, right? It doesn't matter what. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But culturally, I think there that doesn't establish a language of, well, this is, these are our commonalities. Like these are our shortcomings. These are my shortcomings. Let's establish a commonality and a language for how we can bridge that and accept like our femininity, as you said, first and foremost, come from that place. And then I think actually bridging the gap probably would have been a lot more gentle looking. No. And and don't forget you're in the corporate environment which is highly, yes. highly competitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, white women see black women as two first. Oh, you get to check race and gender. I just get to check gender. But, you know, we expect white women, and I like your, I like your, your term, terms close to themselves. It was interesting. You can ask a black woman, you know, who are the significant women in your lives? They go back to their school teachers, their Sunday school teachers, the aunties galore, real aunties, mommy's girlfriends are aunties, you know, hey, here's the list of aunties. <laughs> and then they go to all the historical figures, Sojourner Truth, you know, Audrey Lloyd, you know, they're just popping names like crazy. <laughs> you ask a white woman, who are the significant women in your lives? Who, whose shoulders do you stand on? My mother, my grandmother, and silence. Yes. You know, it's a kind of a cultural kind of of the way we're raised Mm. and the role models and the roles that we play in our community is often very different than, as you point out, from 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 white women. And we expect white men to not understand culture. Why do we expect white women to be different? Do we think gender is so powerful? Culture is culture. You know, and you learn race via culture. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's the issue. I think people think gender will be a common denominator for women, that they will automatically find each other because they, they share the same gender. And clearly our book showed that that's not true. It's a racialized gendered experience. It's not the same. And people keep missing that. And so if you think about how distant how distant Black women are from the prototype of what a leader should be like. I mean, this whole thing hasn't changed that much. We still think of a masculine, hyper-masculine, looking a certain way, male. And so, yeah, so, and it's just interesting to us too, Gwyneth, because in interviewing the women, the white women always believed that the relationship was more positive that they had. They would, oh yeah, I have a good relationship with with my Black women colleagues. And the black women would say, no, that's not true. So even the white women were often blind to the fact that there were problems in the relationship. So that tells you a lot too, if two people can't understand that the relationship was not authentic. So they had very different views of of the relationship. And Ella, I was thinking of the story with our research assistant, one of our young doctoral research assistants who was helping to interview the white women When she went to interview one woman, the woman asked her, well, she asked her, will my interview be seen by the black women who are who are the who are the professors? Are they going to actually see this interview? 
So she was very guarded or worried about how we or how she could respond. Should she respond authentically or should she respond so as to not offend us? So, yeah, I, I think this belief that all women can bond over gender is one of the challenges that we still face. I was going to ask you in the 20 years that ensued between original publication and now, if you, what, if any headway has been made both in what you just touched on and also just percentage wise, like corporate in corporate America have, have the percentages shifted? Are there more black women now in positions of management in America? Yeah. Gwyneth, I wish I could say, wow, things have really changed. No. I mean, this was depressing as Ellen and I worked on the reissue to look at the numbers. It's to give you the numbers. When the book was published in 2001, it showed that Black women were 1%, 1% of the people in the corporate suite, in the highest levels. Okay, flash forward. That number has grown to 1.4%. And to make it even worse, it seems like it's, it's regressing because they're not even in the pipeline to leadership. Another recent statistic that also indicates the challenge, everybody's celebrating the fact that for the first time you have the highest number of women leading Fortune 500 companies, 41. How many are black? Well, three, three black women. The only good news in that story, it's also the first time that a black woman has succeeded a black man. So you've had like a continuous level of black presence. I think what is happening, the way many companies are diversifying leadership is going to the comfort spot, which is to bring in white women. So in a post, George Floyd world where corporate America has at least said they've woken up and are putting a lot of money. You see Goldman Sachs having, you know, putting $10 billion behind BIPOC founders and there being pipelines to create the talent across corporate America. Do you, I really wondered how you both feel about these initiatives and, and how they're going and, do you have hope that this will change the racial landscape of cor- corporate America? I mean, I, I love the initiatives. You know, I use the example of Estee Lauder and the money that they're putting again with Amanda to what they're doing. But I certainly like to know how many African-American men and women are on Estee Lauder's board. I sure like to know what the pipeline looks like at Goldman Sachs. You know, there's an internal response and there's an external response. Corporations, particularly in times of racial upheavals in our society, do always come to the table, which is fantastic and is needed on a consistent basis. But what are they doing internally? Mm -hmm. You know, it's one thing to throw money. An equal amount of money has to go internally to develop, to recruit to alleviate, dismantle systemic racism and gender problems in the company. That takes money too. And corporations will always tell you, well, you know, we know how to do that. Well, if you knew how to do that, your numbers would be different. Your reality would be different. So that tells me you really don't know what you're doing. 
So are you willing to pay the money and the price to break down these, these barriers, if you will, so that black women of color, black, brown, Asian, Native American women, who we don't want to talk about at all, will get an opportunity, if you will, to succeed. I'm hopeful but skeptical. I'm not sure, Gwyneth, that they really understand systemic racism and the magnitude of it and how much change they would have to do individually, how much they would have to give up. Because if you think about it, it's not only just women having jobs in, 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 in senior leadership, but you know, the whole structure <laughs> of corporate America would have to change in terms of you know, even financing, you know, private equity, how resources are distributed. And so we have a very long way to go and the cultures have to change. So you can add more women, more black women and more Latino women, but they often have to assimilate, Fitting. you know? And so the structures don't bend. I mean, that was one of the problems I had with the book Lean In because I, did, you know, the women have to lean in. Well, what about changing those structures? I mean, how far can you lean in? I mean, you know, you, you can bend only so much. And I think that there's a lot of value to be added if, if corporations would consider changing their culture, given the issues that the world is facing, that you know, in terms of poverty, climate change. But so I, I think some people are sensitive but whether or not they understand the depth of change and personal change that they would have to undertake to make this happen, to make a real difference. You know, if you think about people don't want in any diversity training, no one should talk about racism. You shouldn't talk about what is a critical race theory. You know, even some organizations trying to sanitize the diversity content. So I just hope that corporate leaders are really serious and understand the depth of what needs to change. But I wanted to ask you both as a white founder and CEO, what are the things that I should be thinking about as it pertains to creating and maintaining a truly diverse workforce? And what are the metrics that I should set up and measure myself against? You know, that's, 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 that's a good question because everybody wants the matrix. I, I'm a gooper, all right? And here's what I can tell you that I have been aware of. All of your, your email, all of your, your website, it's always diverse, always. That means a lot to me. Yeah, the women, they're young and they're thin and I'm old and I'm cranky about that. <laughs> you know, you already know how I feel about that. But you know, it's so nice to see the young sisters, you know, with natural hair. I mean, I think the, when we, we think about is how do you think about pipeline? Are there internships that you can provide, particularly mm -hmm. for young girls who love beauty in urban areas? And, and also we've got to hit the rural areas too, but are there, are there internships that you can provide for younger girls who want to enter the beauty industry. How can we support more women entrepreneurs like yourself? You know, we know right now that for entrepreneurs, black women are leading. They're in the greatest number. How do we do that for brown women? How do we do that for Native American women? 
how do we do that for Asian women and how do we keep it going? What kinds of opportunities can we create to provide them for funding? But for you, I, I think it's pipeline. I think there's development, how you're developing, how you're keeping everybody aware and talking about these topics and talking about these subjects and educating folks. And, you know, how does this look globally for you? You know, what does this look like in South Africa? What does this look like in Nigeria? What does this look like in Brazil? We once had a conversation, I don't know if you remember, I think I sent you an email about different spokespeople. Who are the older spokespeople that, or the younger spokespeople that you can put us put out there that folks can can resonate with? You know, those are stories that are important to tell, and and you're doing a lot of that. And then, how do you tell your story about learning about this? You have an unbelievable nature, and no matter what comes at you, you still get up and you shake it off, and you're still connecting. And you're still trying to ask the hard questions, all right? They don't come any more blonder than you, kiddo, <laughs> in terms of matrix. You know, Stella, you're the, you're, you're the, the HR. Well, what, what, what do you think? Well, I think it's, you know, I think a simple way of thinking about the metrics. if I looked at Goop and I just saw who, who was in your work, who are your workers, who are your employees, a good metric is no one is in, people are not stuck in stereotypical roles. They, things are all mixed up. Yes. You see, that to me, and that you, you, can see, you can see the talent and you're not expecting them to, become, to come in a particular package. You know, this idea that women are in, in, in soft positions so, you know, if I, if I saw that your chief financial officer was a Latino woman, single mm-hmm. mother, I mean, it's things like that, the qualitative aspects of who's the Who's on your board? Yeah, the, who's your on your advisory board? board? The qualitative aspects of your profile, more so than the numbers, because a lot of companies have played the numbers game, but the numbers don't mean a lot. The numbers without the people feeling like they belong, one thing, are you, are you leaking people? Are you able to retain diverse talent? You see? So those would be more qualitative indicators that you really have done things differently and that you really value uh, a diverse group of people who can build the organization. And do people feel like they belong? I yeah, think belong. there's a, a cultural question in terms of a young organization like yours are you building a culture where people feel they belong? Mm-hmm. You know, or is it Gwyneth's way or the highway? You know, what does belonging look like? What does competency look like? That's an important question in terms of your culture, you know, because you all could be using a very masculine male model. And what I've seen in women operated companies is that they're even more competitive. I'm not saying this about Goop. But they're even more competitive and they work really even harder with less benefits because we want to show the boys. Don't get caught up in that. You know, the people feel appreciated. People feel that they belong, that they can use their voice, that they can come in with ideas and that it's open. And so more broadly, you know, given some of your findings in the book around competitiveness between Black and white women in the workplace, how do we 
break that down in corporate America between black and white women? What do white women do in order to make a concerted effort? I also find that so many of those things, there's a lack of awareness. You know, it's it's not like somebody's going to work and thinking these things, but they're kind of embedded in or they're inculcated in from generations of culture. So how, how do we start to dismantle that and create sisterhood in that at that intersection? You know, the best example I have of that, and I, I have seen it done, and I've got to give Dylan McGee makers kudos for this. Even though she founded it, she's left to go out on her own and do some things. When she started, I remember I went to the first makers and it was interesting, you know, but she had black women. She had black women on the program, you know, the whole nine yards. But at the end, she brought out her her team and they were all young white girls. And, you know, I went up to her afterwards and I said, you know, if you really want to keep doing this and make a difference, you you, got to have some color back there, kiddo. And she said, okay, what do you want to do to help? And I've been working with makers ever since. I love, Mm -hmm. I love Dylan. This year, and she changed, by the way, she changed. She brought a black woman on her staff. She's got brown women on her staff. Her programs, I mean, it's no more, here's Hollywood. It is, you know, he's doing work work around rape. He's doing criminal justice. I mean, it's just amazing. The last program was just absolutely amazing. But they have started something. The white women said, we want to help. We want to be help our sisters. So now they have a black woman's makers table in addition to the white women so that the black women can come together and talk about how to advance other women, what they can do to throw their power. And these are all seeing these are powerful women, you know, who are in senior positions. Some of them you probably know. Okay, I would be very surprised if you didn't know most of them. The reality of it is I saw how she moved, how she changed and made space, if you will. Too often black, white women want to help, but they want to still control. I'm going to help you, but you're going to do it my way. And you're going to wait till I say we're ready. It's a control issue. I've seen that too. It's different to say, how can I help? What do you need? And how do you, how can I create the space for you to do what you need to do? And oh, what you I love that. Do? That's beautiful. The space is, is, is important rather than the assumption. And then how do you really build a real relationship? You can't be co-conspirators unless you really have a relationship. You know me. I know you. I'm not caught up with all the you know, yada, 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 yada. No, I know you as a as a thinker, you know, as someone who cares, who's willing to put stuff down on the line and pick yourself back up, okay? I, I know, that I know about you, okay? What do you know about the other woman? Mm-hmm. That becomes really important so that you trust her, that you know she's going to be there through. I know Stella's going to be there through thick or thin with me. When Clay was sick with cancer, with leukemia, girlfriend got on a plane from, from South Africa. You know, she was right by my side. Look, I got to go. She took care of Clay. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's like, are you going to be there do or die? 
that becomes a significant question for really building deep relationships and for really becoming co-conspirators. Because if I'm going to get my butt kicked, you best believe I want to see you get your butt kicked too. I think white women have to take the time to understand race. Race and racism is really part of being a black woman. And if you don't understand that part of it, as we understand it, I cannot connect to you. So, you know, so, you know, you get sisterhood with people who don't say, oh, it wasn't racial. Oh, you know, you should work harder. No, they didn't mean that. It could be the case sometimes, but I need that. I need my white sisters to understand what racism is, what it has done in terms of the status of Black people, how important that is to us. If we can't talk about that, it's going to be very difficult for us to have a relationship. And so I do think that being afraid to talk about it with me is not the right strategy. I'd rather see people take a risk and open up, as Ella said, authentic relationship. I think those conversations are not happening. You know, yeah. So I think, yeah, we we have to talk about that because it's like the elephant in the room. So we can't just form a relationship in the workplace based on just being women or we're both in the same department. That's important. But another part of my life is, is the racial context, the racial frame. It's part of a white woman's life, too, but she may not see it that way. But but we need to talk about that. And what is the best way to foster that conversation? Because I think there are white people in the workplace that are worried about starting that conversation. Yeah, it's it's scary. I mean, you, scary. you don't know, you don't want to be perceived as racist. You don't want to be perceived yeah. as ignorant. So I always tell people, start on your own. First of all, understand what your whiteness is. How did you learn about race? Mm-hmm. You know, we do this at Tuck with our incoming students, every class, the dean and I. We do a whole whole morning with them. Matt talks about how he learned about race as a 56-year-old, tall, very good-looking white male who's had a lot of privilege in his life. And then there's little old me who talks about, you know, how I learned about race and the consequences of that and how does that impact our our, our relationship with each other, how did it impact? And what does it mean for who we are as leaders? We put our students through that. How'd you learn? And, and don't tell me, well, I never met a black person. Well, I didn't, you know, hey, <laughs> you learn about race without meeting a black person. Guess what? What you see on television? What book did you read? What did your parents tell you? How'd you learn about being white? What did white mean in your society? The women we interviewed who talked about, you know, they're so glad they're not a black woman. Well, excuse me, what did you learn about being a white woman that made you feel more, more beneficial with your race? I, you know, I, you obviously you learned something. So do your work. Don't come to me expecting me to teach you about your whiteness. Understand your whiteness and then do a little preliminary work. There's enough information out here today about the Black experience. Don't come to me asking like you have not read anything or do not know anything. I mean, I'm amazed amazed that everybody is so shocked about Tulsa. Uh, You know, no one knew about Tulsa. Well, uh, Rosewood. 
there was a movie called Rosewood that actually broke down everything. And thank God for HBO because, you know, what was that? That I, I always forget, but it was so, so good. The, 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 the science fiction thing that they did and they, the background was in Tulsa. So everybody was like, did that really happen? Look at movies, read books. God knows there's a ton of books out here. Yeah. There's a ton of films out here that you can begin to understand what our experience is. Don't expect the Black people around you to be able to teach you that full experience because one person's voice does not tell you what race means. And I'm A single more, story does not give you what race means. And I'm more open to, be, to accept the mistakes if I know you've tried, you've done some homework, maybe you don't quite understand it. I'll give you a data point. One of our colleagues did a study on the impact of Black Lives Matter in the workplace, and she interviewed Black employees. And what she found is that they were very upset because when all of these incidents were happening, like the one in Starbucks where, or the, the police br brutality, that they would come to work. And this thing has been a big headline in, on the news. And none of their white colleagues would even want to say anything about it, mm -hmm. you know? And so that silence was interpreted as, well, maybe this was not a big story for them. Maybe they have no interest in it. You know, people come into the workplace, of, you know, when something big has happened, people talk about it. But when big things happen in Black people's lives, there's silence. So what does that silence signal? If you're a black person where, you know, some of them said it was so hard for me to come to work after George Floyd was murdered in front of my eyes, but none of my colleagues said anything. So this silence doesn't work. White people need to be brave and start yeah. a conversation. Yes. Why put it always on the black person? It's always on us to bring it up. And that's what corporations do. They put it on the black women, they put it on women. You wanna change, you wanna succeed. Um, this is what you have to do. I think we're at the point where when I look at our grandchildren, when I look at the younger women, they're getting tired of you tell us what to do, which is why they're becoming great entrepreneurs. Mm. Corporation doesn't, corporations don't have much time. I think the relationship, I think more whites are, are whites are, beginning to understand and, and stand up. I, we saw that with the racial protests summer before last. You know, growing up, you never saw, you saw very few white people involved. But to see the younger voices now, the younger white voices, I'm hopeful that there will be change. I'm hopeful that the conversation will change. You know, I used to believe that when my generation died out, you know, that there would be change, but race is passed along. It's in the DNA. It's, you know, genealogy on how I raised, uh, how I socialized my child, you know, what I socialized my child to believe in. So we are always going to have, I believe, that shadow in our society. But I'm hoping that the louder voices, if you will, the more intellectual voices, if you will, will prevail. And we will find a way to reach those people that believe all the wrong things. I, it's sad to see that science no longer matters. It's sad to see that 
we don't want to talk about our history, the different views, the different, the different realities of history, quite frankly, that we don't want our children to understand racism. You know, this type of pushback, this type of ignorance, this type of, of, of white privilege, white supremacy is very, very scary at this stage of the game. We should be long past this. And, you know, we're going backwards in a handbag at this point. And it's really, really frustrating. And it's so, so scary. Yeah. And so important, therefore, for those of us who, you know, like me, people like me, to become aware of our unconscious white supremacy that we didn't even contemplate in a pre-George Floyd world. I'm hopeful that people like me who want equanimity and equality and, you know, everybody, certainly my daughter's generation, I mean, they're, they're so past us in so many respects. Yes, they are. You know, and I, I do think that that acknowledgement, that self-awareness, that it's something that needs real attention. It needs conversation. It needs deprogramming to a certain extent. You know, I, 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 I do hope that when my daughter is in the workplace in mm-hmm. that, it will look very different. That's a good hope. And I, yeah, we, yeah, we hope so. We can't, we can't continue the way we are. I wanted to ask you, and I want to be mindful of both of your time and I know we're coming to a close, but I just wanted to ask you like of the, of the black women that you interviewed, what has stayed with you in terms of sentiment from, from these women? And especially as you came back to revisit the material, is, is there a, is there a particular woman or are there particular stories that have really stayed with you and, and fueled, you know, your, your curiosity and in, in, in bringing this amazing information to the world? You know, it's, it's funny. Many of most of the, the women that we interviewed are retired now. <laughs> if I said their names, you would know them. So they were really excited to see the book come out. I think my favorite story, and I think Stella and I have different favorites, but my favorite story is the story of two two girls, one black, one one white. They both grow up in dire circumstances. The black girl grows up in the South. Her mother's a sharecropper. Her father is in and out and has other children in the area, is not consistently with the mother. And this little girl after school has to go help her mother clean white folks' kitchens and you know, pick uh, cotton and do all that kind. I mean, she's just amazing, but she's also one of the smartest little girls in the school to the point where when she graduates, she's a valedictorian. The principal is aware, very, very much aware. And when she doesn't submit a college application, her mother can't afford to, to, for her to, you know, to fill out and forward the application and send the application in because it costs money. The principal literally goes to the girl's house, sits down with the mother her senior year, the child's senior year, and says to the mother, you've got a very smart daughter. She needs to go to college. It will make a difference in her life, and it will make a difference in your life and your children's lives. I'm going to pay for her college applications. 
and she goes off to college when it's time to pack her bags and go. The church that she goes to, they don't give her secondhand clothes. They give her a whole little wardrobe and a suitcase and uh, the, the church sends her off. Her teachers make sure, you know, she needs book money. You know, the principal and the school, high school's got that. And, you know, off she goes and she does become a senior executive in a company. She's, I mean, top. Take the parallel of the little white girl. Her mother is not doing well. Her father, she has remarried. The mother has remarried to an alcoholic who doesn't give a darn about the mother really and doesn't really give a darn about the child. The mother gets cancer and dies. And she's now in high school. The girl is in high school. And he doesn't want to deal with her, the stepfather. So he turns her over to her aunts who literally put her in servitude. This girl's got two dresses. She comes home, she washes one dress, and so she has it for the next day. And she's literally playing, she's, she's a Cinderella story, if you will. She's, she has to cook, she has to clean, she's got to take care of her, her little cousins. She sleeps on a cot that's in, in the kitchen. She goes to school, she's hungry. She goes to the library because she doesn't want anybody at the school to know that she can't afford a meal. She too is the valedictorian of her class. Her principal tells her, well, you better get a job because, you know, clearly you can't afford college and clearly, you know, you're not going to be able to manage that. So the best thing for you to do is get a secretarial job. She graduates, she gets a secretarial job and sure enough, she gets to the top of the house too. Two lessons. The Black girl learns that there is a community that supports me. There is no shame in who I am. There's no embarrassment of who I am. I am loved. I might've come from dire circumstances, but I am loved. And my goal is to reach back and repeat what was done for me. I need to help as many as I possibly can. I'm not gonna judge. I'm not going to uh, turn my back. The white girl, when she becomes a woman, she learns, you better pull yourself up by your bootstraps. There's nobody there that's going to help you. There's nobody, there's no magic wand. There's nobody who is going to make a difference. And oh yeah, since I didn't have a good father figure, I want to make sure that I tuck myself as closely as possible under the white senior male. Because he will, my fantasy is, that's my father figure. He is going to protect me. He is going to take good care of me. And I will rise because of him. Very different outlooks. But those two stories have stayed with me probably more so than some of the other stories. Because we don't talk about class enough. Right. And we forget that there are Black women who are privileged mm. too. Mm. That's like not privileged. Mm. That's a whole other book. Yes, it is. Yeah, I hope somebody writes it. <laughs> so, well, I was going to say, I don't have a single story, but what sticks with me is the ingenuity of the Black women in climbing over the concrete wall, despite all the barriers. And that's one thing readers, Black women in particular, or any woman could get out of the book, how creative they were in not reacting and bash and, and and, and just striking out in anger. And the one story is a woman who grew up in a, in a middle-class, solid middle-class black family, 
went to Ivy League schools, had an MBA from an Ivy League institution. And she talked about the, the constant daily doses of racism and sexism. And one thing that irked her, she was very smart, very good in math, strategy, analytic, analytical work in the company. And whenever she would make a presentation, invariably somebody would say, you speak so well. And she just got tired of it. But she didn't want to lash out and say, of course, I speak well. I have an Ivy League education. I have an MBA. So what she did is she reconfigured her office. And what she did is she changed her, you know the story, she changed her desk so that when a person opened the door, there would be her desk and she's sitting behind it. She took all of her degrees and she put them on the wall behind her so that Hopefully nobody would walk in her office and exclaim to her, wow, you, that presentation you did, you spoke so well, your English is so good. <laughs> but so, so there were just many stories like that, how the women, you know, they weren't part of the old boys network. They didn't get involved, in, invited to the golf game. So they would find ways to, to, to bring the, their colleagues together. So just that ingenuity chipping away at that concrete wall you know and 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 just to um for edification you you both talk about the concrete wall in the in the in the book yes. that women have white women have a glass ceiling but women of color have a, a concrete wall yeah and it's amazing that they had the energy to chip away at it you know mm -hmm. so they were very aware of the barriers but tried to find ways to overcome it Absolutely. and to succeed well, I feel so lucky that I got to speak to you both today. I, I, I learned so much. I'm so grateful for your wisdom and your academic prowess. And <laughs> thank you so much for, for joining me. Your work is so incredibly important. So thank you. That means a whole lot coming from you, my dear. You know, I, I love you. I love you too. You're amazing. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Ella Bell Smith and Stella Nkomo. Again, I highly recommend that you get a copy of their updated book, Our Separate Ways. Their work is critical to understanding and evolving our workplaces and the larger culture. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.